Redemption. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Sean, and I'm on staff here at Redemption. And as we come to our time in the Word today, I want to ask that we take some, some time and just pray to God that he would open our eyes to see his Word properly and to see wonderful things that are in it. So would you join me in prayer? Well, Father God, whenever we come to this time, we are struck, Lord, by the gift that you've given us in the Bible. Lord, people in this world tell us that you set the world in motion and then took your hands off, that you are unknowable, that we must search to discover you. Yet, Lord, that is not true. You have made yourself known. You have told us clearly and plainly who you are, what you're like, and what you do for us. So God, we thank you that we have access to the scriptures. We thank you that now more than ever before we can open the Bible wherever we are and read to discover what it is that you would tell us about yourself. We thank you for speaking through the prophets and the apostles, and we ask God as we come to the word today that you would open our eyes to see the things that we need to see in it, and that you would open our hearts to believe what it is that you tell us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, today we are diving back into the book of 2 Corinthians. When we started our series last year, actually now, um, we were calling it The Uncomfortable Exchange, and that was to reflect the fact that in the opening chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul is confronting the Corinthian church with some issues that are going on. Now, though, as we progress into a second portion of the book, we're calling our series The Great Exchange, because now Paul is going to start dealing with some of the truths that are most near and dear to the Christian heart. Specifically today, we're going to get to see him deal with the topics of this life, our death, and the joy of what comes in eternity. Our text today that we're going to look at is one that's familiar to a great many Christians. It's one that's provided comfort during this life's trials to many people, and it's provided hope when we consider the life to come. It's one that we read at many Christian funerals, because in it, Paul does discuss life, death, and the hereafter. And at the end of our text, he's going to commend an attitude to the Corinthian church and to us that everyone should reflect. Every Christian heart should reflect his attitude. But as I was preparing the sermon for today, and as I was reading through the text and trying to craft my thoughts about what Paul is saying, something kept sticking in my mind. There was a blockage to the sermon that I just couldn't seem to get past. A, a question was forming that I felt needed to be addressed before we could really see what Paul was saying. The thing is, is this. Paul is going to offer us a perspective today that is a great comfort to us if we share it. But the question that kept coming to my mind as I was reading is, what if we don't? What if when we read what Paul has to say, when we see the, the things he says about the life to come, we look at that and we say, that's not how I feel. What can Paul say to us then? If you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of 2 Corinthians and turn to chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 1 and go through verse 10. 
If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the seats in front of you. Please feel free to take those. Or the verses will also be on the screen behind me. And a little bit later, we're going to be jumping around through the Bible, so the screen might be your best bet, unless you're a really fast page turner. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Let's read. Paul says this. For we, we know that if the earthly tent that is our home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we might not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, we're going to be approaching this text a bit differently than we normally would here at Redemption. Normally at Redemption, when we do a sermon, we walk through a text verse by verse, and we try to un unfold the author's thought, explain where he's going. And if that's what you really like, don't worry, we're going to do some of that. But we're going to start by doing something a little less traditional. I want us to start this morning by jumping straight to Paul's concluding thought and really thinking about it. You see, everything Paul is saying in our text today, and honestly, everything he said in our text last week when we were in chapter 4, leads him straight to this one thought. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. In other words, when Paul considers his life, when he considers all that this life is, and when he considers what the next life will bring, he looks at this world and he says, I would rather this life be over and me be in the next. But this is where the sticking point was occurring in my thoughts. See, I know this is a perspective that every Christian ought to share. We ought to look at the life to come, see its glories, and say, yes, I would rather be done here, have this life be over, and be in the next. And in the past, I've preached sermons that have led straight to that conclusion. In fact, if you go back into our archives, you can find a, a sermon of me preaching a text almost exactly like this one. Jason loves to remind me of it because apparently I said that death catapults you into glory, and that image was vivid enough to be memorable and kind of funny. But when I was thinking about doing that for this text, something kept nagging at me. I know this is a perspective that is good and true. I know this is what every Christian ought to feel, and yet I know that for many people, myself included over the years, this is not the perspective we actually hold. When we look at the life to come, 
when we think about this life, we don't say with Paul, I would rather this life be over and maybe in the next. So I wanted to start this morning by addressing what may be an elephant in the room. Many people, even Bible-believing Christians, don't want to die. Seems kind of obvious, but it's true. Many people don't want to die. Even those of us who know, really know that what's coming after this life is better than this life, still shy away from the idea of thinking about this life ending. So what I want to do this morning is ask, why? Why does this tendency exist? I want us to start by reading the text in a bit of a different way than we normally would, and then come back and see what it actually says. I want us to start by asking, why do these fears that draw us away from affirming with Paul, I would rather this life be over and me be in the next, exist? And then I want us to see how Paul would address them. So, let's start. Why is it that a Christian might not hold the same sentiment as Paul? We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Well, I think the answer can be boiled down to three basic fears. Fear of the unknown, fear of death, and fear of God himself. Let's start with that first one. Fear of the unknown. Well, when you read biblical texts like the one we just read a moment ago, when you read the texts that deal with life and death and life hereafter, you start to notice something that has intrigued and honestly disturbed believers in every age of the church. Namely, you start to notice what's not there. And what's not there is a lot. Think about it. Paul says, we have a house in the heavens, not built with earthly hands. We might ask, okay, what is heaven like? What, what is this place that this house exists in? Well, we don't know. Paul doesn't tell us. We might look at him and he says, we are going to leave this body and take on another. And we might ask, well, what will that body be like? What age will I be? Will I look the same as I do now? Hopefully not. But we ask those questions. Paul doesn't tell us. He gives us no information. We might say, okay, well, I'm crossing over this life into the next. This is eternity we're talking about. Well, what is that going to be like? Will I age at all? Will I note the passage of time? Will there be time in eternity? Will I eat? Will I sleep? Will I work? Will I play? What will this be like? Nothing. No information. Paul doesn't tell you. Even the things Paul does present to us, the things that he holds out as saying, this is what will happen, are cloaked in metaphor and analogy. For example, he likens passing from this life into the next as taking off one set of clothes and putting on another better set. Or he compares our current body that we live in now to a tent, a temporary dwelling place, and he compares the next to a house, something much more permanent. And these give us some idea that there's something better waiting, but it doesn't really tell us how it's going to be better. 
we don't get any real information about what this will be like. And I honestly think this is because Paul himself didn't know. Paul probably didn't have any information other than what he's communicating to us. This is probably why he says, we walk by faith, not by sight. We're not there yet. We don't know what this is going to be like, and so we live in faith, hoping for the life to come. And unfortunately, even the things that Paul does tell us that that we can read and we can see, we're uncertain as to what he really meant by them. For example, when you read about the the earthly tent and the, the house in the heavens, scholars debate endlessly about what Paul is trying to tell us here. Some will ask, did Paul think that immediately when we die, we get this new body that he's talking about? Some seem to think so. They see Paul saying, if this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, present tense. And they say, obviously, Paul must think that immediately when you die, you have a new body and you are in this perfected state and it's wonderful. Others disagree. They look to Paul's statements elsewhere and they conclude that he believed, well, no, you have to wait for a resurrection at the last day on the day of judgment. So what happens when you die is you go to be in heaven, but you're unbodied as it will be. You, you are without physical form, and you have to wait. And still others will say, no, no, what Paul has in mind here is some sort of soul sleep, that when you die, your, your spirit just ceases to notice anything around you, and you, you wait until the day of resurrection. Now, I have my opinion on what Paul is meaning here. I tend to think it's more the second one. But the point is, even in the things we think we understand about Paul's knowledge of the afterlife, of the life to come, we're still tentative at best. Now, maybe you're thinking, but so what? Who cares what we don't know? At least we know that what's to come is better than what we have now. And I can sympathize with that, but I think If we say that, we may be underestimating just how intimidating and uncomfortable not knowing is for some folks. Particularly, people who are especially inquisitive or who spend a lot of time trapped in their own heads trying to figure things out. These people can look at this vast unknown and it produces anxiety, even fear. This may be the first time anybody's quoted this man in a sermon, but the popular American horror author H.P. Lovecraft once remarked that the oldest and strongest type of fear that ever disturbed the human heart was fear of the unknown. And I think he was on to something. It becomes all the truer the more you don't know. And there's nothing that we know less about than the vast open gulf of eternity this never-ending life after this one. And for many people, not having that knowledge causes anxiety, fear, and sometimes even panic. Now, is that appropriate for a Christian? No, obviously not. Paul is giving us a much different perspective, but we must acknowledge that it exists for some folks. And in acknowledging that it exists, we have to also recognize the role it can play in preventing people from agreeing with Paul when he says, I would rather be away from this life and in the next. Well, let's keep moving. I said that there were three fears that often cause people to disagree with Paul. The first was fear of the unknown. The second is the fear of death itself. 
Let's go back and let's look at verse 1 in this passage, and I want to draw our attention to one word in particular. You may be able to guess from the screen what it is. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul says this, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, notice the term, not if the tent that is our earthly home gets taken down and packed up, not if we leave the tent that is our earthly home, but if it's destroyed. That term evokes some pretty negative images, and it's intentional. Destruction is not pleasant. It's something painful. It's negative. It's devastating, and it involves loss. See, a lot of people, even in the church, misunderstand the Bible's view of death. The Christian view of death is a bit different than we often think of it. When, when we think of it, many believers, because we know of the life to come, we downplay death. We treat it as if it's no big deal to a person of faith. And some people have even misunderstood Paul's words in this passage when he says, I would rather be away from the body, as thinking Paul is longing for death. But the Bible's perspective on death is different, and it helps us by seeing it to understand why so many people, even Christians, still fear it. Death, according to the Bible, is not a good thing. It's not something you long for. Paul calls death an enemy that seeks to destroy us. In biblical terms, it's an unnatural curse that only exists in this world because of our sin. Biblically speaking, humanity was not meant to die. You read Genesis, the opening chapters of the Bible, and you see humanity's original destiny was eternal life with the Father. Yet we've brought death into it. And when you look at death, and you look at this life, and you see the aches and the pains of this life, you see the curse that has been brought upon the world, all of these are part of and previews for death, that final sting of the curse. In biblical terms, death is painful, it's evil, and it's wrong. The Bible tells us that God himself will judge death as part of the, the thing that he will destroy in the day of judgment. Now, seen this way, there's little reason why we wouldn't think people would want to shy away from death. It's bad. It's not something that we would want to go through. Even Paul, who speaks of longing for the next life, doesn't long for death. You see this in how he phrases his words. He says, For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, but notice, he clarifies, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. To use Paul's metaphor, death is the unclothing. It is losing the body of this life and being unbodied, as it were. Death is not Paul's goal. That's not what he's saying he's longing for. He's longing for what comes after we have endured death. But for many people, the fear of that unclothing, the fear of the destruction of death is enough to cause them to shrink away from considering the joy of eternity. 
you, you think about eternity and all the wonderful things it brings, but then you think, to get there, I have to die. And so you pull back. This is true for a lot of people. Now you might be thinking, but why would anyone want to hang on to this life? Why would anyone not want to die? Because this life has so many pains and sorrows. Well, it's just human nature. It's the same way someone might put off for a very long time, sometimes even until it's too late, a painful surgery and recovery that could help them out a lot. It could bring them relief, but they put it off because they're afraid of it. They know it's good. They know it will bring something after that's even better, but they shy away from it. My wife works with a lot of pre- and post-surgery patients, and she'll tell me about these people who they live in constant low-level agony, but they cling to that because they're afraid of a surgery that could be a little bit more painful for a time, but would bring relief. We might think about that, we might think that's completely irrational, and it is, but it's human nature. It's what we do. Now here again, we're not condoning this sort of fear, but we need to acknowledge it. We need to know it exists and it holds people back from seeing life and what comes after how Paul sees it. But there's still one more fear to bring out into the open, and that's the fear of God himself. Now by this, I don't mean what the Bible means when it speaks of the fear of the Lord. I don't mean what the author of Proverbs calls the beginning of wisdom. Instead, I mean a doubting, dreadful form of fear that asks the question, what if? What if? Look at, look at what Paul says in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, as Christians, we believe that our standing with God is secured not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. We believe, we confess, we know that it is his life, his death, and his resurrection that save us and nothing else. That's our confidence. But even with that knowledge, this is, this is the depravity of the human mind, even with that knowledge, there's still sometimes this little voice in the back of someone's head that asks, what if? What if there's more to it than that? What if somehow you've been deceived? What if, and this is something people ask, what if you believed in Jesus wrong? That's the worst one, because you'll cycle forever on that, because there's no way to assure yourself. But this happens. People have these thoughts. And of course, it doesn't help that there are entire religious movements out there that use a text like 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, you will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, to say, you will still be judged for the sins you have in this life. Whether it's the people who think that you can sin so much that you'll lose your salvation, or the people who tell you that your sins deserve a lengthy stay in purgatory, or even just the people who, like one preacher I've heard, says that at the judgment, your life is going to be replayed on this giant heavenly IMAX screen, and all your friends and family will look at it and be ashamed of you. There are countless voices out there that contribute to that little question coming up in the back of people's minds. What if? What if somehow God still 
he judges me. And perhaps more than any other, that fear is easy to understand because none of us want to experience God's judgment. None of us want to bear that. Even Jesus, when he was about to bear the wrath of God against our sins, asked his father, God, if there's any way that this doesn't have to happen, please take this cup from me. He didn't want to bear it, let alone us. And so you can understand why any doubt or fear in this area might cause someone to shrink back from saying with Paul, I want to be in the next life. Because if you aren't certain that what waits for you in the next life after this one is done isn't judgment, any thought, any mention of crossing that barrier is enough to make you go, nah, I won't think about that. I'm going I'm to watch some Netflix. I'm, I'm going to think of something else because that's uncomfortable. And there's other fears we could mention, but I think this is enough to get the idea. There are things that hold even Christians back from affirming with Paul. I would rather be out of this body and into the next life. And you may be asking, Sean, why did we spend so much time talking about all the ways that you could not believe what Paul is saying in this text? That was really depressing. And that's a valid question. There's two reasons. One, because there may be someone here today who feels this way. Who when they hear Paul say, I would rather be in the next life, they say, ah, I can't be with you, Paul. I'm sorry, I just I don't feel it. And for that person, someone who's just hammering home the glories of the life to come, a sermon that did that would do no good. Those words would just roll off the back because the fear that holds us back wouldn't be addressed. But also, second reason, because if we're here today and we say, no, actually, I agree with Paul. I don't know what you guys are talking about. That seems kind of weird. You need to know what is going on in the minds of those around you, your brothers and sisters in Christ. What is it? If you've ever looked at someone and you thought, man, why don't they just get this? Maybe this helps you kind of understand what can go astray in someone's mind that can cause them to pull back from a joy that we should be having. And hopefully what comes next can tell you where to point them for encouragement. So we've looked at the text and we've seen things that Paul says that could get twisted up in our minds, that could cause fear or anxiety and cause us to pull back from the real conclusion he wants. Now let's, let's look at the text in a more traditional fashion, and let's see, can Paul address these fears? Can Paul give us reason to say with him, I would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord? Let's look back at verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We've already talked about how Paul uses metaphors to describe the life to come. Here, he speaks of a house built by God, a house not made with human hands waiting in the heavens. And if we were to ask Paul, Paul, where did you get this picture, this picture of a heavenly house that's waiting for us? I think his answer would be from the words of Jesus himself. Jesus in John 14 said this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. 
In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Jesus, before Paul, had spoken of a house not made with hands. He spoke of his Father's house in heaven. And he talked about how we are guaranteed a place there because of what he's done on our behalf. Now, Jesus, like Paul, doesn't tell us anything about this house. He doesn't say it's built from stone. He doesn't say it has a deck out back that you can grill on. He doesn't tell us that it's got curtains or anything like that. He gives us no actual information, but he uses an image that tells us something. He is waiting, and he is in his father's home. And that image, the image that I think Paul is drawing upon, gives us a bit of understanding in why Paul is able to look into the unknown of eternity and not feel fear. See, I would wager that Paul had an even greater understanding than we do of what is unknown about the life to come. What's the the phrase? The more you know, the more you know you don't know. That's basically Paul's situation. He knows a lot more than us, and so I imagine he knows a lot more the questions that we could be asking that we don't have answers to. But Paul faces the unknown with a certain faith. He doesn't waver in the face of this vast gulf of eternity that we know nothing about. And we could ask why. Is it because he doesn't comprehend how much he doesn't know? I don't think so. Is it because I'm wrong and he has some secret knowledge that he's hiding from us? No, I don't think so either. Paul's confidence isn't based on anything he knows about what eternity is going to be like. His confidence is based on who he knows will be in eternity waiting for him. See, if we were to ask Paul, what will eternity be like? What will we see when we get there? He'd probably say, I don't know. But I can tell you who you'll see when you get there. And that's enough. This is, this is the source of Paul's confidence in the face of probably unending, unanswerable questions that you could ask about eternity. He just looks at that and says, yeah, all of that is a mystery, but Jesus is going to be there. He will be the person who greets me when I get there. And that's enough to give me confidence. This is, this is Paul's idea. There is a house waiting for us. It is his house. And if it's his house, no matter what I don't know about it, it can't be bad. That's his great confidence. We, we fear the unknown. And there's a lot that we don't know about the life to come. But what we do know is this. Jesus will be waiting. He will be right there. He is the one who has prepared this place for us, this house not built with human hands. And whatever else we might not know about that house, the knowledge that it belongs to him is enough to assure us that when we get there, it'll be good. But let's keep reading. Paul goes on. He says, For in this tent, this body, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we might not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal might be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Paul talks about a heavenly dwelling awaiting us. 
a new life, one that is better than this one. We think it probably doesn't have the pain and the sufferings of this life. But to get there, Paul says, we must leave this life behind. We must be unclothed to be using his term. We've already seen that, biblically speaking, death isn't something that we should long for. So why does Paul see death staring him in the face and yet say, I long for what comes after? Why is he able to do that? Well, the answer is found in understanding what Paul means when he talks about the mortal being swallowed up by life. You see, this isn't the first time Paul has spoken to the Corinthian church about life, death, and the hereafter. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and look at verse 35. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35. Paul tells them this. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Like, like the painful surgery we talked about earlier, Paul knows death is a necessary step towards true life. Skipping ahead a bit, he continues in verse 42 of chapter 15. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. In the case of those who are afraid of surgery, one tactic doctors might use to get them to go through with it, to do the thing they need to do in order to experience relief, is to introduce them to someone who's already gone through the procedure. Someone who has experienced the thing that they fear and has come out the other side better for it. This is somewhat what Paul is doing for the Corinthians here. He's introducing them to someone who has endured death, who has felt the full weight of its sting, and yet is on the other side and experiencing everything that they could hope for. Paul points them to Jesus. This is the man of heaven that he's speaking of. He says, he is what we will be like. He's our example in this. He's been raised. The newness of life that he experiences is what ours will be like as well. And more than that, look at him. That's your assurance that whatever toll death might take on you, it's not worse than you can bear. It's not as good as what follows. You think of Jesus, though he endured sorrow upon sorrow in his earthly life. He doesn't experience any of that now. Paul is doing something very smart by pointing people to him when he talks about the mortal being swallowed up by life. He's essentially saying, look to what happened with Jesus. That's what I'm waiting for. 
Paul goes on, he concludes at the end of chapter 15, he says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Is Paul longing for the life to come due to the fact that he has no concern over death? No. Paul sees death for what it is, but his concern is outweighed by what he knows is waiting for him afterwards. Well, let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's keep reading in verse 8. Paul says, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now we've come back to the statement we've started with, Paul's conclusion here. I would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. We've seen Paul need not fear the unknown. He knows who is waiting for him after he dies. And he need not fear death because he knows, yes, death takes its toll, but what comes after is better. But there's still that last fear to deal with. And for many people, that's the one that nags at us the most. What if? What if somehow, some way, when all is said and done and I reach heaven and I'm before God, he still chooses to punish me for my sins? And Paul is clear. We are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. But here again, because of Paul's phrasing, because of the things he chooses to tell us, we gain a bit more understanding, and with that understanding, hopefully we gain hope. Ask yourself, Paul says we must appear before the judgment seat. When he pictures this, who is on that throne? Anyone? Jesus. When Paul pictures the scene, Jesus is the judge. Jesus is the one giving out what is due for what we've done in this life, whether good or evil. Now, that last phrase might cause people to, con to have some concern. They might say, well, what does it mean that we will receive what is due for what we've done, either good or evil? That sounds like I might still be punished. What does that mean? And there have been many answers Christians have given to what Paul means here. Some tend to believe that what Paul is saying is that Jesus is not judging us in this time based upon whether we'll be saved or damned, but to what degree we will be rewarded for what we've done in this life. It's the idea of what we've done, good or evil, will play into how much reward we receive when we get into heaven. Others seem to think that Paul is viewing what we've done, good and evil, not as the basis for why we're judged, but as confirmation of Jesus' judgment. When he pronounces, you are with me and thus you are saved, our life will stand in confirmation of that. I tend to think it's more the first one, but whatever it is, there is something more important that I want to draw our attention to, and that it's Christ who judges us. That's what is giving Paul hope when he considers the judgment. Christ is the one 
who judges us. Now, why? Well, it's pretty simple. Because Christ is the one who came to earth to live and die on our behalf. Christ is the one who suffered on the cross. Christ is the one who bore the wrath of God and who rose again to make a way for our sins to be forgiven. And you have to ask the question, if when we picture this final judgment, we're picturing Christ on the throne, do we really think that he is going to say or do anything that negates what he's already done? Do we really think that he's going to go against his own work, that he endured all of that just to condemn us? No. That would mean Christ suffered for nothing. It would mean he did all of that, endured all of that pain, just to say, never mind. I've changed my mind. I, I said in the first service, Christ is not that dumb. Somebody pointed out to me, Christ is not dumb at all, Sean. And that's true. The point is, Christ is not going to do something that negates what he's already done. He wouldn't have suffered crucifixion, endured the wrath of God, risen from the dead, all to secure us a place in his kingdom, only to have us get to the day of judgment and go, nah, I changed my mind. This is not the picture that we should have in our minds when we think of Christ on the throne. If we ask, is there any way that I might still be condemned after this life, we just need to remember the person on the throne is not going to do that to himself, let alone us. Because it's him on the throne, we get to live confidently. No fear of condemnation. He's never going to do or say anything that doesn't line up with what he's already promised in salvation. So, where does all of this leave us? Well, hopefully you can start to see a bit more why Paul is able to say these things. We can see, even if we were afraid, we can see a bit more why Paul is able to say, I would rather be away from this body and at home with my Lord. He sees another life waiting, a greater life. A life, not of the unknown, but a life with our Lord and Savior. He sees not a life that suffers because it comes by way of death, but a life that's free from the pains and sufferings of a dying world. And he sees a life not where we are judged, but where we are finally set free from sin's curse. This is enough to answer any fears that we might have about the life to come. Any of the things that plague our minds, if we remind ourselves that this is what is waiting for us, that will direct us toward what Paul says. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Let's pray.